Two friends taking pictures of the rising full moon on a summer night. Two teenage kids doing what teenage kids do. When a stranger with a gun and a death wish changed everything. It was violent, it was senseless, and I will never understand it, I will never accept it. I'm Amy Donaldson, and unfortunately, we're all too familiar with stories about how violence shatters lives. But what we rarely see is how they are rebuilt. In a new podcast, The Letter, we relive tragedy, but only so we can hear the rest of the story. The struggle to reclaim lives, the realities of grief, and the possibilities of forgiveness. I believe in miracles. Sometimes I thought, there are no miracles. Yeah, there are, and this is a big one. Follow The Letter at theletterpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to another episode of Relentlessly Resilient, where real people share real-life experiences and the tools they've developed to move forward and live their best life. I'm Michelle Scharf. And I'm Jenny Taylor. And Michelle, I'm excited. Today we have um, a soldier with us and my new friend, Captain Benjamin Wheatley. Captain Wheatley, how are you? I'm fantastic. Thank you so much for having me on today. Hey, this is great. Captain Wheatley and I have been working together through the Army's uh, Center of Medical Excellence, and then we've worked together on some recruiting things and some high school things, and he's originally from Utah, but now in Texas, so lots of connections. We'd love for you to introduce yourself, and I know first off the bat, since you are a military member currently serving in uniform, we're going to give a little disclaimer and I'll let you make that so that there's no confusion about your personal opinions versus the military's official stance. Yes, thank you. Yeah, I just need to make sure it's understood that anything I say is my personal opinion and does not expressly represent U.S. Army official policy. I am happy to share what I get to do in the Army, but what I say are my personal opinions. Thanks again for having me. So I'm a, a soldier from Utah. I was born in Ogden. I was raised in Layton. And uh, I joined the Army after I returned home from a church service mission in 2006, and I've loved every moment of it. I I say that because of my resiliency. I feel like you bounce back and learn from every opportunity. And so if you don't take account of the full history of everything that occurs, you're missing out. And so every day might not have been awesome, but I chose to end it on a positive day because what resiliency means to me means bouncing back from whatever occurs and taking in everything that occurs as a lesson learned, growing from it, developing and improving from it. That's what resiliency means to me. Okay, that's awesome. And, and sorry to cut you off there. So often we we think resilience is something you innately have versus something it sounds like you've you've exercised. Every day might not have been awesome, but you've chosen to find some lesson in the day or some good in the day, and that can be the resilience. I love that you recognize that right off the bat, just kind of out of, out of the gates. That's great. So tell us a little bit about you. You said you joined the military in 2006. You're now in San Antonio. Tell us maybe what you do in the Army and, and how the Army has kind of helped strengthen that resiliency. So I joined the Army in 2006 as a financial management technician. I was married at the time, and uh, that was a joint decision on the type of job that I could do, and I and I loved it. Uh, I went to school in the Army's tuition assistant, got my associate's degree, and then applied for the Green to Gold Active Duty Program, which allowed me to go to school full-time as an E-5 enlisted soldier to Brigham Young University and, and graduate as a distinguished military graduate 
commission as an officer, became a medical service corps officer, uh, worked with medical uh, combat medics, was a medical platoon leader, medical operations officer, chief of managed care. And my current job is the director of the U.S. Army Medical Center of Excellence uh, Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion Center. So I'm the DEI director. What that means is that I operationalize the Medical Center of Excellence's People First initiatives. I coordinate and synchronize taking care of people and making sure that we have a leadership environment that recognizes how important they are to leading soldiers and their families. And I also work with suicide prevention, risk reduction, resiliency, and anything that helps soldiers become uh, stronger is what I'm involved with. Okay, that's a wide list of things to put DEI with kind of that resilience and suicide prevention. Can you tell us, Captain, a little bit, are, are there any experiences of your own, either personal life or military life, that have really helped solidify some of your resilience, a, a memory or two that stands out that you could share with us? I imagine it's been a lifestyle for you, but are, are there any, you know, something that happened either in the service or in your personal life that kind of really just helped you solidify some of that strength? Yeah, I think it's a collective. I think resiliency is a learned skill and you don't understand maybe sometimes how resilient you are until you go back and look at things. One of the things the army does a lot is called an after action review where you review an event and determine what went well and what went wrong so that you can correct it. And I think it's important to reflect on past experiences. That's something the army taught me, but I think it's been through my life when uh, growing up, uh, I did boy scouts and I think that really helped me learn to work as a member of a team and take care of other people and learn new skills uh, in my church, I was very involved with uh, taking care of people, leadership opportunities. You join the Army, and then you're required to get better at leadership over time. And so I was even a, just a young PFC, and they made me in charge of supply. I was a supply into IC as a PFC, responsible for the logistics of my small finance unit. And to have such responsibility at a young age was important, and it's because my leaders trusted me. I think I had some skill sets that set me apart. But uh, I was taken in under the wing of the company commander, the first sergeant. They were always, t- um, hey, you got a future, Cap- uh, well, not I was a captain at the time, but you got a future, well, Wheatley. And uh, they just inspired me to keep reaching. Then I went to school, got an economics degree. I think that changed how I thought about stuff. You learn more than just supply and demand. You learn how to think about problem sets. And I don't know that I can mentioned specific things, but I think it's the culmination of events, Uh, how I grew up, how I interacted, how the Army makes you part of a team, how you become responsible for the lives of other people. I think as a leader, it really solidified when I became a company commander, and I was literally responsible for everything that my unit did or failed to do, and I was responsible for the lives of my soldiers and their families, and I had good leaders and I had bad leaders, but for the first time, I was solely responsible for their welfare. And that really was important that I maintained a positive aspect to my life and a positive role model because they looked up to me. At least I took that responsibility. So I think collectively the experience of being a team member in the Army and responsible for other lives has really helped me to learn to look at the positive in everything so you can inspire others. That's a powerful way to look at it, to say you had your soldiers and their families kind of well-being in your hands. Let's talk a little bit about what that looks like in your resilience work. Uh, we know statistically military members and veterans have very startling s- statistics in terms of mental health, suicide ideation, suicide attempts, and actual suicides. I'm interested to learn how your 
what your work looks like. You're a soldier in the military right now, still serving, and you have kind of this responsibility to help with, how did you word it, the resilience and strength of the, the soldiers. Can you talk us through maybe what does that look like when you're trying to help maybe these other soldiers develop or increase their own resilience? How do you do that in the uniform setting? So I would say there's a difference between what certain program directors do. Like my current role is the director of the DEI center. I provide resources to other leaders. And I think the most impactful thing is talking about stories, events, scenarios, examples, so that leaders can see what their impact has been or what other leaders impact. If I could go back a little bit, I was uniquely blessed to be a warrior transition battalion executive officer and acting company commander. And at the height of the end of the war, there was a lot of soldiers that would come back with injuries, psychological conditions and whatnot, and they would be in these warrior transition units. And we also found a lot of first-time soldiers who had maybe had some trauma that they didn't know was trauma. Then training was really difficult or go to their first unit of assignment and they didn't understand. So I was blessed to be responsible to help with a lot of soldiers that were going through suicidal ideations as a young lieutenant. Uh, one of my first leadership roles, and I was managing with nurse case managers, transition coordinators, social workers to take care of these soldiers that were going through transition. And a lot of times in the military, unfortunately, there will be a, a leadership view where, well, these soldiers are no longer capable to perform their mission. But my mission was to make sure that those soldiers were prepared for civilian life. Then I became a company commander at the Medical Center of Excellence, our hold company, and I had the same experience again where I had a lot of the mental health challenges, soldiers that were experiencing uh, suicide prevention. Some had experienced uh, the unfortunate effects of sexual harassment or um, sexual assault. And I just have been blessed to be a leader that was able to get involved in soldiers' lives to find out what really they went through and help them understand what they could do about taking care of themselves. And then I got to work with the drill sergeants and the other leaders, the other company commanders, the other battalion commanders to help them see opportunities that you have to look at each individual soldier as an individual soldier. Sure, you've got to know how your unit can accomplish its mission based on the skill sets of the mission. But the Army's People First initiative is really changing the dynamic of you have to understand where your people are coming from first so that you can know what challenges they're going through so you can help them. Because when they know how to take care of their challenges, they're more able to take care of their jobs. And that dynamic has been phenomenal to watch through. And so now with all that historical perspective and personal experience, I was recognized as an empathetic leader. My brigade commander said, you are a very empathetic leader and we are going to nominate you to be the next DEI director because we know with your experience and empathy, you're going to be able to help transform other leaders. And so that's why I got the position that I'm in now. And I'm learning now how to be a program manager to share some of those personal experiences with other leaders. That's awesome. You know, building resilience and helping people become more aware of their struggles. I mean, of course, it just translates into more productive people across every industry, right? Yeah, like you said, if you can get them to be to where their their emotional and mental health is stronger, their resilience is strengthened, then they can do their jobs better because the the other pieces aren't a distraction from it. Captain, let's take a quick break, and then when we come back, we'll continue the conversation of what building resilience looks like in today's Army.
It's the story of an American held in a dark Venezuelan prison. Then all of a sudden, they all kind of lined up. They pointed their guns at me. And this is the point where I thought, I'm going to die today. I'm Becky Bruce. I spent a year working on Hope in Darkness, which now has more than 2 million downloads. Find it on kslpodcast.com or wherever you listen to podcasts. And we're back. So, Captain Wheatley, I'm curious, what does it look like when you, as the director of the the DEI Center, when you're training the next level down? I I know the military to be a giant institution of a lot of organization. You've mentioned several different ranks, and each rank is under a different rank, and some are enlisted, and some are officers, and some have deployed to combat, and some have maybe had more of a a peacetime or at-home support job. How do you, in your DEI capacity, how do you train some of that empathy? Your leaders recognized it in you and gave you that opportunity. What does that look like to try to train that in this big, giant institution known as the United States Army? Now, that is uh, a huge question. Thank you for asking. I think that's a really important question because the Army is done a talent management shift where they're getting to know their soldiers' skills attributes better, and they go into a talent alignment, and now we interview for positions. And so I don't think we can train certain characteristics through mandatory or organized training. So we have to put individuals that have particular skill sets amongst other individuals so that they can learn from each other. And so I really think that in the empathy sphere, It's about having those one-on-one conversations with other commanders. It's it's easier for me to talk to another company commander having been a company commander, so I know their struggles that they're going with. And then being a medical hold company, I was a brigade asset, and so all the battalion brigade commanders interacted with me because of the interaction of transferring soldiers. And so one thing I need to also preface with is that the Medical Center of Excellence is the only center of excellence currently to have a DEI center. So it's a pilot program in the larger training and doctrine command. So I actually have a unique opportunity to help develop the program. The Army is going through an opportunity to create a prevention proponent, but we already have some amazing mandatory and uh, training environments that already exist through our SHARP team, sexual harassment and assault response prevention, Uh, our equal opportunity office and our chaplain office and so at the medical center of excellence the eo director the sharp director the chaplain we all work together to go out and do team visits to the organization be resources when any of those incidences occur but we're really transforming from any reaction to when event occurs how do we handle it to doing prevention training and it really is sharing stories and examples case studies so that people can get experience learning from what others did well or didn't do. And then I really believe it's about relationship building. I think leadership is all about relationship building. And when you make a connection, find out what that person needs, desires, struggles with, and then how you help them, then you come together and you can help each other be really resilient and then take care of others. I love that. We we talk a lot about the importance of coming together. In, in this country, we like to be independent and self-reliant. And we sometimes fail to maybe rely on others around us to help us in our resilience. Can you give us a little bit of context? How big would a company be if you're the company commander? How big would the brigade be? 
And how big is the Army Medical Center of Excellency? Can you quantify some numbers of maybe units and individual troops? Yeah, approximately a company is about 200 to 300 soldiers. A battalion is between five and 800 soldiers. And the brigade is approximately two to 3,000 soldiers. The Medical Center of Excellence with our instructor programs which includes the medical training brigade and the support staff. The Medical Center of Excellence has approximately 600 civilians and uh, 600 military, so about 1,200 people. But we train 30,000 students annually. So at any given time, there's only so many on the ground, but about 30,000 soldiers come through annually. And what kinds of things might they be trained in at the Center of Excellence? I know I was able to visit the Center of Excellence earlier this year, but it was very new to me, even having been you know, part of a military family for a couple of decades now. Can you tell us maybe what and where, what happens at the Center of Excellence? What makes it kind of its own unique organization within the giant Army institution? Yeah, so every soldier goes to basic combat training, but then All the enlisted soldiers also go to advanced individual training. So the Medical Center of Excellence hosts all the enlisted medical programs for advanced individual training, pharmacy techs, lab techs, combat medics. uh, There's a whole host. Uh, And then we also train the medical officers in what's called basic officer leader course. So every medical officer comes to Fort Sam Houston for their basic officer leader course, their captain's career course, and then other courses called professional military education, PME. There's also pre-command courses. What's unique is the Medical Center of Excellence teaches the various medical specialty and medical leadership that is specific to Army medicine, whereas there's other institutions and and AIT centers and ex-centers of excellence that focus on their specific subject matter expertise. Medical focuses on medical, but we also do general military training that's like what infantry officers or other officers get, other enlisted soldiers. So there's basic military leadership, there's advanced military leadership, and then there's Army medicine-specific training. And you said you train 30,000 soldiers in a year. That's a lot of particularly young people, right? I imagine most coming through are, are at least starting out young. Yeah, it would, it's probably more... Um, 20,000 of the young soldiers and then 10,000 of the um, captain's career course bullock. Uh, okay, as they, as they advance in rank. Right. The combat medic MOS is the second largest MOS in the Army. Oh, wow. Uh, second to the infantry. And so there's a combat medic assigned to every unit, uh, company, uh, and above. And then some have more than one medic. And what level of medical training would those combat medics have? So the combat medics are getting basic EMT, and then they're, we're working on a program to get them advanced EMT, and we're also working future to get every medic uh, paramedic qualified. But they all get a basic uh, EMT license uh, upon graduation. How does the program differ? Like, oh, they get that training, but where is that resilience training coming in conjunction with that? That's a great question. So resiliency training is formalized through the master resiliency training. There's uh, 14 modules of various resilience topics uh, in a partnership with a university. Uh, I apologize off the top of my head. I don't have that. I can send that. But there's a there's a codified master resiliency trainer assigned to every unit in the Army. And so every unit has a master resiliency training that has gone through extensive resiliency training to teach these 14 modules. And then every soldier gets these modules annually. 
for the particular, the first time soldiers, they'll get some onboarding briefings where they get their equal opportunity, their sharp training, how to take care of yourself, how to take other. There's a lot of initial entry training that they get some briefs on. And then where the resiliency really comes in is it's augmented through the drill sergeants and the instructors that they're infusing it using those principles from the mass resiliency training. For example, there's a how to control breathing, there's a how to control your thinking, how to avoid thinking traps, things of that nature where they can learn how to think a little bit differently. And so those drill sergeants and instructors, when they come across an opportunity, they can teach those resiliency principles, but it's infused in initial training and then throughout their career. Okay, I think that's important because, again, we hear the statistics of how frightening mental health and and suicide and things can be among our soldiers and our, our veteran population. And it would make sense that that kind of resilience training needs to be infused because what they're doing by nature requires resilience. I mentioned that I was able to visit the center of ex- the medical center of excellence earlier this year, and it was eye-opening. And again, I've been married to a soldier for a while and been through some deployments and, and different experiences with the Army, so I kind of felt like I was maybe an insider that knew how this goes. But being down there and watching those medics train, we particularly watched some of the young medics and some of the young paramedics in training. And the thought came to me that, you know, they need medical skills, obviously. They're being trained to do all the medical things. But that resilience piece has got to be a part of it because they're training to go to a battlefield. I mean, a hospital or a medical center in the civilian world might need enough resilience as it is because you're, by nature of the medical world, you're trying to help people's bodies work so they stay alive Combine that with combat environments and deployments. And and like you said, if one medic is attached to every single military unit, well, those military units might have different missions and different responsibilities. So I'm curious, what are you seeing, particularly in today's young soldiers? I, I get that you're infusing this training. I love that you're doing that. Are you seeing them arrive at the training with resilience already Are you seeing them in need of that? And we've got to really amp it up because they're not necessarily coming equipped. What are you seeing in today's young people as they're joining the Army and coming through your training? Is the training we're giving them working? Are they starting with much? That's a great question. So it's a whole gamut or spectrum, you could say. Uh, Every soldier is different and unique. And so the volume of soldiers coming through does make it a challenge. But actually, every soldier at the U.S. Army Medical Center of Excellence is screened both from a physical screening as they come off the bus. Uh, they, they may have had an injury at basic combat training that didn't get adequately taken care of, but they also get a mental health assessment. And it's anonymous, but the Army has what's called a unit risk inventory. So as they take that inventory, you can get a collective view of how that unit may be struggling based on some survey responses. And then there's some additional screening um, Every soldier has the opportunity to let know if they have a a need to talk to a chaplain. And so at the Medical Center of Excellence, every single uh, new soldier gets multiple screening tools. And then if they need some assistance, uh, they're given some resources to help. And then there are soldiers that don't report what they've been through. And there are soldiers that didn't understand maybe a traumatic event. They didn't know it was a traumatic event. So when they go through training, there are some soldiers, I would say it's a small population, 5% or less, 2% or less, that have had some sort of traumatic event that they didn't know how to handle. And our drill sergeants are really trained. We have a great behavioral health team. Uh, in fact, we have a behavioral health officer at the training brigade. And so any soldiers that are identified with a particular issue, they start struggling. 
or if they start falling academically, they get additional resources, some, some additional interviews by the drill sergeant, and then they get referred to a military family life consultant, the chaplain, or a behavioral health specialist to get additional screening. And so what we can do is individualize support to those that it comes out and the, but the vast majority of the soldiers they just they 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 put their head down they want to get out of training and so they are motivated to complete their training and so i would imagine there's a few soldiers that could use some additional resources that never ask for help but the culture has been changing i've been in the army for 17 years it, for sure at one point if you went to behavior health you were ostracized you looked down upon now that's not the case uh, it's like going to get an optimization visit and so we've really changed that dynamic. In fact, we probably get more soldiers to go to behavioral health than they need to. What we're seeing is that there are still some life skills that, you know, maybe education used to teach some, you know, home ec classes and whatnot, and maybe some other classes that, that maybe the education hasn't quite gotten to some of the life skills. So a lot of soldiers, it's their first job. It's their very first time away from home. And so they're learning how to be an adult. And that can be a real challenge. And most of them, the, the vast majority, you know, the environment that is established is, hey, we're as a team, everyone has a battle buddy. No one is alone in training. No soldier is ever alone in training. And that could cause some stress on occasion. But for the most part, it's a strength because they learn from each other. Then they're small groups, they're small platoons, they're companies. They learn from each other. They learn from the cadre who are more than just instructing medical, but they're instructing life skills. Uh, and then we have those resources I mentioned, military family life consultants, chaplains, behavioral health specialists, military family readiness center. Honestly, there are so many resources and our cadre are specifically trained to do an assessment. And when a soldier has a need, they connect them with a resource. In the resiliency module portion of their training, is there any like uh, follow up or like uh, group support or opportunities for them to like so that it's not just like a classroom experience, but like, how am I going to apply this learning in my real life? Or how might this apply to something that I'm struggling with? Are they able to have a space where they can talk that through with some other people and have some ability to process it in a way that they are able to internalize the teaching? And the training is actually established where a lot of that occurs during the module training. And so the case studies, the examples, everyone's invited to participate and many are called upon to share. Oh, uh, no one's forced to share, but, but a lot of those principles are actually integrated into the way that the, it is trained. There's also a resiliency uh, performance center on each installation and, and army wellness centers and uh, we're partnered on joint base with our Army Resiliency Directorate and Army North. There are a lot of resources and, and resiliency professionals, and they can come and do a unit assessment. And so in the Medical Center of Excellence, there's some very specific training. I mean, we've been training combat medics and other medical specialties for, for many, many years. And so the program of instruction is, is pretty routine. Uh, it's reviewed every year to, to make sure that we're keeping up with the advances. But going through the training module is pretty standard. But what's beautiful about the Army's resiliency program is that these resiliency topics are not only infused initially, but they're an annual requirement. And so as they go into their first unit of assignment and second and third, they're going to get retrained in those same skill sets, but they're going to have new experiences and new case studies to draw upon where they can do exactly what you mentioned and practice it. And then they can talk to their instructors and their assigned master resiliency trainer before or after class if they have additional needs. 
I love that because a big part of resilience is what you were saying when you opened up um, your introduction. It's really being able to take an accounting, not a blaming, not a judging, but an accounting of experiences or whatever we went through that was maybe traumatic and being able to just be able to see it, but then also be able to reframe it like what were the lessons learned? So I love that they're having this opportunity and that it's yearly because especially in the life of a soldier, I imagine there's a lot that can happen. Some maybe depending on their deployment, maybe not so much, but for those that are out in active combat or, you know, actively engaged or, or training issues or incidents or accidents that happen, I'm sure in a life of a soldier, there's just a lot of opportunity to be able to understand how to apply these skills and tools to be able to be a stronger, healthier, more emotionally aware person. Yeah. Let's take one more break and come back in a second and talk about the military family and resilience. We'll be right back. All right, Captain Wheatley, this has been fascinating. And I'll admit, I'm excited to hear this. The paradigm of a drill sergeant who's compassionate and trying to assess the resilience and emotional strength of his or her soldiers does not necessarily fit, you know, maybe the drill sergeant I picture in my mind that's just screaming at everybody and making them do push-ups all day. So I'm glad to hear that as our world modernizes, our military and our training is is trying to keep up with that and these efforts to train and to reiterate the training and to apply the training and like you said, you can only screen so much out of a person who doesn't want to be screened, but at least we're trying to change the paradigm, and I'm happy to hear that. I'm wondering what you can tell us. We've only got a few minutes left. Let's talk about the family. You're married. You have kids. A lot of the soldiers and, and military members you work with have some kind of family outside of the uniform. What does resilience look like in a military family, and what resources might be available to the family member who doesn't wear the uniform but is definitely impacted by that service? Yeah, phenomenal question. And it certainly is important because the families are the lifeblood of the military. Uh, whether it's a single soldier or a married soldier, there's parents, there's grandparents, aunts and uncles, uh, spouses, children, but families are consistent. And, and my brigade commander often says, you know, the incentives and whatnot might recruit a soldier in, but you're retained by the family. If the family's not supporting you while you're in the military, then your soldiers are going to get out of the military. And so, the military has family readiness groups. They have changed it to soldier and family readiness groups to include the single soldiers so that they're not forgotten about. But the family members have so many resources. In addition to their TRICARE covered benefits, they also have access to the military family life consultants, military one source. They have soldier and family readiness centers, um, some installations called uh, Army Community Service. But the family members have access to a lot of resources. Now, I'll be honest, we have some work to do to make sure that spouses and children uh, feel comfortable to come and use some of those resources. I think the biggest challenge is spouses who work and kids in school. And so getting those services after hours, but military one source is 24-7. But every unit has the soldier and family readiness group leader. But we also do a lot of events. We try and ensure that we have organizational days where the families are invited on. Uh, families are invited to come to the ceremonies, the graduations, the potlucks, the promotions, um, all sorts of events, uh, observances. 
So the family members are involved and, and we do the safety brief every week and remind people to take care of their families. And, and the families are included and depending on the unit leadership, they might be more included. And then some families, uh, they like to separate work. And so it's sometimes hard to get families involved. But when you do have a family that gets involved, they share their lessons learned with other families. And so the Army is really working to include the families, and, and they have the same resources available that the soldiers do. Uh, soldiers have priority to those resources, but the, the family members can come in, too. We probably have a little bit better job to help make sure that they know that and feel comfortable coming in to use it. But the Army is definitely a family game. The changes recently, there's parental leave 12 weeks now including adopting and, and foster care. So we're trying to get more that's huge. family care. Center. Yeah, that's great. The Army's recognizing, uh, has for a while, but they're doing more and more right to ensure that the families are taken care of. I love that you're acknowledging kind of that family piece that I, you said benefits or some other package might entice a young person to join the military, but it will be the family that helps that, that soldier stay in or decide to separate. And that's definitely been our case as a family. It was definitely always a family affair when my husband wore that uniform. And I'm grateful to, kind of, I'm nodding along to what you said, there are so many resources available to spouses and children and family members. And the gap probably is sometimes the family members just don't know about it or how to access them. So before we close, um, let's talk really quickly. You mentioned Military One Source. I know what it is. You know what it is. Tell our audience what it is, and then we'll we'll leave a link to the website as well. What might someone in the military or someone who's supporting someone in the military find on Military OneSource? Well, that's a big question because you can pretty much find anything on Military OneSource. I think that sometimes the loss opportunity is if you don't know what you don't know, call Military OneSource. They are 24-7. They have licensed clinical professionals that can address uh, mental health issues and a couple free issues, and they may make a referral to a behavioral health specialist if needed. They can help with uh, adoption resources. But it, really what Military One Source is a set of professionals 24-7 available that if you have any question or concern or don't even know, you call them and then they'll connect you with the appropriate resource. So the Military One Source uh, website will give more information, but it's really the permanent catch-all Call Military One Source and they'll connect you with the resource. It's like the giant switchboard, right? When the, in the olden days with the telephone, when you had to call the operator to connect from your line to the line of the person you were trying to reach. And there's the website version, there's the telephone version. I'll admit, Captain Wheatley, sometimes I forget about Military One Source, and then I'll hear it mentioned in a meeting or a conversation, and then I'll go home and look back at the website. And once again, I'll be surprised at the wealth of resources. Click to this, link to that, did you know, have you thought about, what if this? And again, if you have those questions or if you're listening and you you know a military family that maybe is struggling with this or that issue or has questions about a certain topic, Military One Source is a great place to start because they are that giant switchboard. So I appreciate you pointing out the resources. I think sometimes in life we... We leave ourselves unassisted because we either don't know about resources or we choose not to take advantage of them. So this is a quick nudge to everyone listening that if you're struggling with something or know someone who is in or out of the military, there's probably a resource out there. Let's find it. Let's connect you. Let's get let's get the help that you need or that they need, whether it's financial or emotional or medical or whatever it might be. Let's lean on each other to find the resources that exist, whether they're government or private operated or business or what. So this has been a great conversation, Captain. I always enjoy the time we get to spend together talking about this great army that we have in our country. 
We appreciate you taking the time to educate us, uh, particularly on the Family First, People First initiative in the military and some of those paradigm shifts. I think people who are listening will be happy to hear that. And hopefully we'll start to see some shifts in some of those alarming trends we talked about at the beginning that maybe as we modernize our army and modernize the, the resources available, we'll be able to maybe break through some of those stigmas and some of those harsh realities of what the statistics are around mental health in the military. So thanks for joining us today. And to our listeners, thanks for tuning in once again. We hope you've enjoyed this journey through the Army medical world. And if you've got more questions or would like to learn more, we'll put some links in the show notes where you can find out more about this great facility down in Texas. And I'm positive Captain Wheatley's happy to answer any questions you have. So reach out to us and we'll connect you to him, particularly if you're looking for a job in the military. We've got a few openings. To all of our listeners, thank you for joining us once again. Thanks for tuning in. We hope you will find us on your favorite podcast platform and give us a like and a rating and a review. And we really hope that as you're listening, you've thought of maybe some experiences or lessons learned you're willing to share and that you can be our next guest. You can email us at rrpodcast at ksl.com or reach out to us on social media. Facebook is Relentlessly Resilient and Instagram is Relentlessly Resilient Podcast. And you can now schedule a call with me by clicking on the button. It's in the link on Instagram. It's on the button at the top of the page on Facebook. Michelle is so technologically advanced. (laughs) And I'm happy to take a quick 15-minute call to interview you and see about your story and getting you on the show. Remember, whatever you do today, remember to be kind. You have no idea the struggles others are dealing with in their lives. Have a great day. Take care, everybody. Two years ago, Americans watched in horror as a crisis unfolded at the Kabul airport. She was tear gassed and beaten. Images of thousands desperate to escape Taliban oppression filled our news feeds. More than 80,000 Afghans made it to America. But the story didn't end there. It was very cold. There was no power, no heat. Who would help our newest neighbors? I'm Andrea Smartin. In Stranger Becomes Neighbor, you'll hear the stories of some remarkable refugees who left their homes and their dreams behind only to start over from zero. Their only possession was three blankets. And you'll meet Americans who stepped up to help them. You want me to come when you deliver your baby. What can one person do in the face of an international disaster decades in the making? That's Stranger Becomes Neighbor. Find us at kslpodcast.com, follow us on Apple Podcasts, or anywhere else you listen.